SpongeBob, Shrek, The Daily Show, Sailor Moon, Boy Bands, Sports Enthusiasts, Sherlock Holmes, Barbie, Britney Spears, Hello Kitty, Jandek, Comic Books, Superheroes, Buffy. These are just some of the many, many topics I cover on my podcast, How to Stand, a show about both specific fandoms and just pop culture, internet culture, internet trends overall. Check out How to Stand in the same feed as my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm an independent creator, and so please spread the word about the show. There's an episode for every interest, and I really do appreciate the support spreading the word. You can also find out more info at my site, 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Thanks so much. This episode includes some discussion of suicide and mental health issues, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, everybody, to How to Stand. Today, an episode exploring some of the many examples of famous disappearances. I don't like long intros, so let's just dive into it. 1913. Ambrose Bierce, 71. He was a journalist, author of The Devil's Dictionary, satirical writer, and horror writer. As he was a journalist, he was covering real events, and so he started covering the Mexican Revolutionary War and he rode into Mexico on horseback to do so. Probably should not have been assigned that project, considering he spoke zero Spanish, but whatever. He rode into town on horseback and was never seen again. The rescue efforts were pretty minimal, in part due to logistics, because World War I broke out very shortly after. Interesting twist, some of the characters in his fictional books include a man who runs into his own tombstone and a man who does not realize he's dead. Some actually thought he just totally started over with a new life and identity. April 1932. Hart Crane, age 32. A poet famous for The Bridge, this epic poem. He had reportedly faced a death threat for his work, and he was depressed after his dad's death. He went to Mexico to write an epic poem, but then he headed back to New York on a ship and was never seen again, thought to have just jumped overboard or fallen. December 7th, 1939. Barbara Newhall Follett, age 26. This one I find particularly fascinating. She was considered a prodigious writer, publishing her first book at age 13, called The House Without Windows. I'll link to more about her life on my site because it really was fascinating to read about. She fell in love with writing via typewriter by age five, started writing her own music by age seven, and she really didn't want to play with other kids. She wrote, quote, You don't understand why I have my work to do, because at this particular time, you have none at all, unquote. She was very burrowed into her writing. She chose her book title, The House Without Windows, in 1926, and said this would be a story about, quote, a child who ran away from loneliness to find companions in the woods, animal friends, unquote. The book was officially out in early 1927, and it got so much critical acclaim and was thought of so highly that she was even asked to review some adult authors' books. They really wanted her opinion. There was also this backlash, though, to the massive media praise her book was getting, people viewing her as this exploited child. But she wrote some defiant letters in response saying, I'm not controlled. This isn't like a stage parent situation. I truly love to write. Quote, it is surely very rash to slam down into the mud a childhood and a system of living that you know nothing about. I am very amused at the favorable reviews which are being written. 
I do not take them at all seriously, but I do take seriously an article which distorts into a miserable caricature my living, my education, my whole personality, unquote. She also said people who read her book were much too quick to assume, quote, I were tyrannized over. The book is an expression of joy no more, unquote. The main character in her book does up and vanish herself and becomes a wood nymph never to be seen again. Although her love of writing may have been pure, she did have a troubled home life more than she let on. She was 14 and already writing about dreams that were, quote, going through their death flurries, unquote. She found out her dad was leaving her mom for another woman, and that crushed the family not only emotionally, but financially. Put some burden on this young teen author. She tried to live with friends for a while, hated it, fled, was declared a runaway, then spent some time hiding out in a hotel, writing, naturally. Police tried to catch her, and she narrowly escaped out a window. No matter what, she still made time to write. So although she eventually reunited with her mom and took on different work to pay the bills, she made time to get up extra early and write. That's how she wrote Lost Island, about a couple who get shipwrecked on a deserted island, only to discover one of them grows accustomed to it and wants to never leave, never be found. She eloped, while still a teenager, to Nickerson Rogers and then traveled Europe. She tried dance classes, was trying to find more of a reason to have a spark lit up in her. But this marriage, very unhappy. And she once wrote to a friend, quote, On the surface, things are terribly, terribly calm and wrong. I still think there is a chance that the outcome will be a happy one, but I would have to think that anyway in order to live, so you can draw any conclusions you like from that, unquote. She got into a fight with Nick, never seen again. Her husband really didn't look for her, and her mom didn't even know she had disappeared until 1952. The media didn't even really dedicate much time to her disappearance until 1966, so any search and rescue mission was doomed because it was so delayed. Now, Barbara's writing is only available in Columbia University Library archives. It's been out of print for decades. Although some superfans somehow did find ways to digitally archive some parts of her work, which I will link to on my site. July 31st, 1944. Antoine Dussaint Exupéry, author of The Little Prince. This guy lived quite a life. He was a huge adrenaline junkie. He once crash landed in a Libyan desert, spent a week there just wandering. He was so, so proud of being French. He really wanted to help them in World War II. He really wanted to also help do some damage control regarding France's reputation among Americans at that time wanted to help kind of do some image rehab. He actually wrote in a French paper, quote, Don't you understand that self-sacrifice, risk, loyalty unto death? These are behaviors that have contributed greatly to establishing man's nobility, unquote. He volunteered as a pilot in World War II, but he was so bad. He kept crashing, got lost, ended up in the wrong places, plus he drank a lot. At one point, he got so lost on a mission, he was stranded for days. And because of his wanderlust, who's to say he didn't just enjoy not being found for a while? Bottom line, Antoine became more of a liability than an asset. He was, however, eventually reinstated in 1943, and he got an exemption to fly an aircraft that only people under 30 were allowed to fly for some reason, and he was 42. 
But he messed up a lot. I haven't even mentioned yet that he misread directions and damaged a plane wing once because he flew, instead of the expected 6,500 feet in the air, he flew 23,000 feet. Classic misread. Without an oxygen mask, mind you. He seemed quite blinded to his shortcomings, though, felt very entitled, because when he saw someone else about to execute a mission, he thought, that should have gone to me, he'll get very mad and bitter about it. Part of the reason he got so many chances was because of John Phillips, a photographer for Life magazine, who really held some deal-making, and authorized Antoine for five more missions basically offering reputational help, photo essays in exchange for him getting to do this. Antoine was not seen again, setting off for the Mediterranean on a mission. The plane wreck was found in 2000, but never a body. Several days before he left and was never seen again, his iconic book, The Little Prince, was published, about someone who travels the world, basically. December 1944, Glenn Miller age 40, a trombone player and arranger for other musical artists who eventually started his own band. His band was set to perform for the troops, so he got on a plane to Paris and was never seen again. The plane they took was really flimsy, so flimsy it was thought to have disintegrated on impact, so it would have caused instant death for sure if it crashed, and it did have fuel intake issues that could lead to a crash. What made this case more interesting, though, is that he was thought to have secretly spied for the Allies, although no concrete proof of that was ever unveiled. Also raising eyebrows was the fact some big news channels didn't report about him missing for over a week, a critical window of time people could have stayed on the lookout. One theory about what happened is that Miller's plane was downed by a bomb, because Allies just dumped some bombs over the English Channel to drop the load and the timing just could not have been worse for them to also be there. Others say that timing is not accurate. Lots of speculation, never a clear answer. Finally, an investigation was launched in 2009, after pressure from Miller's son, who wanted to live free of all these conspiracy theories that plagued his family. Unfortunately, Miller's son is now dead, never found out what happened to him. October 7th, 1949. Jean Spangler, 27 an actress and dancer who stayed an extra in 1940s movies, so never credited. She went to the farmer's market one day. Witnesses do report seeing her get there safely, but she was never seen again after that. She said she was going out both to the farmer's market and a night shoot, but there is no record with the Screen Extras Guild of her having a shoot scheduled. An eyewitness reported her at the market looking like she was waiting for someone. She had a very contentious relationship with her ex, lots of child support and custody feuds, very tense divorce proceedings. Two days after disappearing, a note was found in a purse in Griffith Park. The employee found this note in Ferndale, a location famous for killers leaving victims there. The note said, quote, Kirk, can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. It will work best this way while mother is away, unquote. They think that Dr. Scott she was referring to was this famous medical student who was doing secret abortions in the area, but they never found him to question him. A different Scott she could have been referring to was an army lieutenant she had an affair with. He had been very abusive in the past. Some friends thought, yeah, she was pregnant, and others thought, didn't hear anything about that. 
Kirk was questioned, but determined to be innocent, so people are wondering, who's this other Kirk? There were reported follow-up sightings of Spangler, but never a follow-up lead. The LA Times even used to run a yearly story on the anniversary of her disappearance, bringing attention again to this disappearance, but they stopped doing that after a few years of no leads. An extra wrinkle in this case that left people theorizing more people wanted her dead. She was rumored to have gotten on the bad side of Nikki Cohen, the leader of organized crime. She had been previously spotted with a henchman of his. These henchmen she was around also ended up disappearing around this time. However, Spangler's mom says she was, quote, not the kind of girl to get mixed up with people like that, unquote. July 18, 1955, Weldon Keyes, a poet who really got along in elite writing circles in New York, although it's interesting because he's remembered very fondly with admiration by poets and writers, but scholars and historians think he really wasn't all that special. But the people who did find his writing very special were very inspired by it. Some even compiled a book of their Keyes-inspired writing called Aspects of Robinson. He was known for much more, too. He painted, he wrote a film score, he made his own experimental films. He wrote an unpublished novel that was written in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor and was declared, quote, too unpatriotic to publish. He was last heard from very upset, talking about never feeling like his big break as a writer would come. And he had considered just starting a life over, moving to Mexico. July 18th, he made two phone calls, one to Janet Richards, the person he told, I might just leave for Mexico and start over, and one to a broadcaster and writer, Pauline Kale. He was a very troubled soul. He named his cat Lonesome. He himself struggled with mental illness. His wife had a psychotic break of her own that led to a divorce. He took drugs he thought would help his own mental illness, and they made it worse. He was declared psychologically unfit for military service. He had even planned to write a book about suicide called How Not To and Why Not To Do It, but never finished the book. It was on his mind a lot. His car was found by the Golden Gate Bridge, with the key still in the ignition. The wallet and money, though, were not left behind. And years later, a woman who'd known him as a kid thought she saw him again with a mystery woman now. And, bizarrely, his mom says he couldn't have jumped off the bridge because, quote, he was never the athletic type, unquote. April 1970. Sean Flynn, age 28. A photojournalist and an actor, but eight of his ten movie roles really tanked. He was the son of actors Errol Flynn and Lily Demita. He covered the war in Cambodia. He went to photograph a checkpoint with a fellow journalist and was never seen again. He was in Ho Chi Minh City with four other journalists. It was then called Saigon. It's a tragic story because he went there and did daring photography missions like that because he really wanted to be taking it to the max, his goal to distinguish himself from his parents. And now he is distinguished from them in memory because of his disappearance. His mom tried everything, spent tons and tons of money on efforts, but he was declared legally dead in 1984. There was an apparent sighting of him, actually, in 2010. Turned out totally not to be him. The spring of 1974. 
Oscar Zeta Acosta, a super headline-grabbing lawyer who once subpoenaed over 100 Superior Court judges in L.A. County just to prove there was Mexican-American discrimination in their ranks. He was also very well-known for his L.A. sheriff run in 1970. He won hundreds of thousands of votes and got second place. But he spent two campaign days in jail for contempt of court. He was well-known and really drove up a wall, the LAPD. He was an eclectic person who actually inspired a character in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson, the Dr. Gonzo character. He's actually where the name Gonzo Journalism comes from. No one really knows what happened to him beyond the 70s. It was odd because he was so well-known until he suddenly wasn't. Summer 1974, Connie Converse age 50, a singer and songwriter who really was viewed as a pioneer in singer-songwriting. That term, singer-songwriter, in part, she's credited with it, gave the term a lot of legitimacy in the 50s. Yet she was full of insecurity about ever being seen as impactful and making it in music. And then she quit music in the early 60s. She had sent letters to loved ones about wanting to just pack up stuff and leave to start a new life someday, a fresh start. Her brother thinks she died by suicide and was a troubled soul, but nothing to prove that was ever found. Her legacy, luckily, has been able to live on after some of the songs she had recorded did get published in 2009. March 1975. Jim Sullivan, a folk rock artist popular in the 60s and 70s. He was on his way to Nashville. His car was found abandoned in a desert outside Santa Rosa, New Mexico. And his wallet and guitar were found left in a nearby motel. What makes that story interesting is that he had released a song called UFO about driving into the desert and then getting abducted by an alien. You never know. October 1977. Virgil Wintermute, a 60-year-old NCAA player. He went out on a boat with a friend on Lake Washington. The friend fell asleep, woke up, he was gone, never seen again. Some people suspect this friend was being nefarious. Nothing to prove that, though. His son actually thinks he might have just fallen overboard because he took a heart medicine that could have induced a medical episode. April 1978. Seattle Supersonics basketball player John Brisker. He had a terrible reputation. Really bad rep for being angry, confrontational, intimidating, grudge-holding, and so people didn't want to trade him. The Sonics were trying to trade him, even desperately tried to just buy him out of his contract. Then he was just dropped in 1975. He physically was very confrontational, left people on edge. He even sent two cops to the hospital in 1971 after this fight over a cab. He got into a physical fight, breaking a jaw in September 1973, causing four of his teeth to fall out. He also was in big trouble financially. He used to own a club, which closed down, and at that time he owed over 40 k in rent, back taxes, etc. He also was abusive to his ex-wife, allegedly, and he seemed very emotionally overwhelmed upon hearing he was going to be a dad. Those close to him tried to dissuade him from his plans to take a trip to Africa. They just thought he was not in the right place mentally to go on a trip right now. But he ignored their concerns and said he was off to Africa, never to be seen again. A State Department spokesperson said, quote, essentially we don't consider him dead, unquote. 
A story that ran in the AP, though, in 1980, claimed he was shot and killed while in Africa, but then again, Brisker's brother said he was back in Africa five years earlier, so the AP story didn't make sense. He was, though, just for settling his estate, financial purposes, declared dead in May 1985. The more salacious theory is that he was a mercenary and was fed to people with his wife, like cannibalized. He was thought to have taken a trip to Uganda the same year as a coup, so some people think he died amidst that. And there have been no sightings or anything in the over four decades since this happened. An FBI office spokesperson said, quote, We cannot conclusively say if the FBI was involved or not, unquote, regarding investigating this in the first place. July 7, 1979. Ian McIntosh, age 38, an action novel writer who created some British TV shows, including The Sandbaggers and Thundercloud. He was on a flight with his girlfriend Susan and his friend Graham, who is also the pilot, traveling to Alaska. The plane sent out a distress signal, which the Coast Guard tried to respond to, but by the time they got there, no sign of them. The family has previously claimed they were stonewalled from getting information about what happened to him. Investigatory files. Another odd thing about this case, experts did see and think that the maneuver this plane took is the kind that is the textbook example for people who want to stage a harmful landing, something going wrong. If you stage a crash, you do what they did. Doesn't mean that's what they did, but if you were to do that, that's how you would do it. His brother said, quote, if for some reason he had to disappear, he would do that. He kept everything to himself, unquote. September 1985, Art Scholl, age 53, a flyer in Top Gun, Blue Thunder, many other movies, pre-special effects times, so he was extra in high demand. He had a lot of experience with flights, but that doesn't make him immune to getting in an accident. He sent a radio message saying, I've got a problem here, before his plane crashed into the Pacific Ocean. He had been upside down intentionally for the stunt, and the crash occurred mid-stunt. A shred of the plane was never found, nor was anything on his body or his body itself. Coast Guard assumed he just died on impact, but the search and rescue efforts gave up awfully quickly after just one day. 1986. Christina McKechnie, a member of the psych rock group called the Incredible String Band, and the girlfriend of a founding member of it, Robin Williamson. She went home to Scotland to visit family, Apparently had to undergo surgery in 1990, that's when her sister said she last saw her, but then someone else claimed she was last seen hitchhiking in 87. Different reported sightings, but officially she kind of vanished when leaving for Scotland in 86. December 1993. Pierre Bianconi, a French soccer star who developed quite a bad reputation, to say the least. He was even banned for six months after headbutting a referee so hard he caused a nosebleed. He even slapped an opponent during a game once. He was last seen in Bastia. His car was found there, but never a trace of him. January 1994. Elenia Carisi, a 23-year-old daughter of the famous Italian singer Albano Carisi, winner of the local version of Eurovision, and a singer-songwriter Romina Power. They were like a Hollywood it couple in the 90s. She was on a sabbatical, alone, for research purposes, from the University of London. She went to Florida, then New Orleans for it, and was never seen again. 
Her passport was left behind. She didn't bother taking her passport on a trip from London to the U.S. I guess if you're famous, they let you slide without it. I don't know. February 1st, 1995. Richie Edwards, age 27. The guitarist and a songwriter for Manic Street Preachers. He lived a really troubled, sad life. Very troubled person. History of drug and alcohol abuse. Depression. He developed this reputation for really dark lyrics, gory publicity stunts, very disturbing stuff. He would say in interviews a lot how he felt born to be forever alone, unloved. He withdrew quite a bit of money from his bank account in the two weeks leading up to his disappearance. Two weeks after he disappeared, his car was found at the Severn Bridge, the place connecting England and Wales. He was writing about that bridge and wanting to escape off of it by age 13. At his last gig, he treated it as sort of a last hurrah. He invited a lot of people from significant times in his life to see this show. They smashed their equipment during the show. They went out guns blazing, really. He had that big send-off show, basically. Later, his passport was found, as well as a note to his girlfriend, and a toll booth ticket for the bridge in the hotel room. The cops, disturbingly, had a sneak attack, basically, in unannounced 3 a.m. raid on the family's home, investigating an allegation the family had manufactured this whole story. Other flawed handlings of the case laid out by his sister. Quote, when we read the police file, we found that Richard had been certified as high risk, yet there was never any helicopter or river searches. The people who last saw him were never interviewed. There wasn't a DNA sample on file until 2005, and even then I had to instigate the submission of this to their database. Due to the logistics of his disappearance, there were actually three separate police forces working on the case, which made it very difficult to get information. It was frustrating to see a police officer give an interview about Richard to a music magazine at the time, yet we couldn't reach them by phone. After six months, there was a statement from the officer in charge saying that it was, quote, highly likely Richard was no longer with us, unquote. For estate-related legal reasons, he was declared legally dead November 2008, but since has been reportedly spotted at several locations. His uncle actually also disappeared previously, which had fascinated Richie. He thought the story was so interesting when his uncle just went off the grid on purpose for a full decade. The laws actually have changed since this case, so now families can oversee more affairs-related stuff without so soon requiring their loved ones to legally be declared dead, which will hopefully limit the trauma a little bit from their quest to bring loved ones home. November 2000. Scott Smith, the bassist in the Canadian rock band Loverboy, quite popular in the 80s. There was a benefit concert for diabetes research in Vancouver, and he went missing right afterwards. Right from the show, he thought, I'm going to go on a spontaneous trip to Mexico. He went on a sailboat with his fiance and a friend, Bill. But Bill later told authorities the boat flipped during a storm in a 25-foot wave. Nobody was ever found, and search and rescue efforts were really hampered because of the storm. After the weather had cleared up, his family did foot the bill for a private search, but nothing came of it. Early July 2002, Bison Deal, born Brian Carson Williams, an NBA star. He once played for Orlando, Denver, LA, Detroit. He won a championship with the Chicago Bulls. He also just did a bunch of different stuff, but he lived like a nomad. 
He even learned to sail and then bought a boat named the Hakuna Matata in a dark, ironic twist. Somehow he disappeared despite being 6 foot 11 inches. He was going to take his Hakuna Matata to Tahiti with his girlfriend and the skipper Bertrand. He was never seen again, nor was his fiance. The skipper was arrested two months after this happened, but not about this case. It was because he was caught trying to buy something with someone else's checks. He was released on bail, but died via an intentional insulin overdose. He had docked the boat July 20th and was alone. Investigators found bullet holes in the boat and that he had placed a call to his mom saying he couldn't survive in prison. The most likely explanation, authorities say, is that Bertrand killed them, threw them in the ocean. But it was never conclusively stated that way. June 2005. Patrick McDermott, age 48. A cinematographer who dated Olivia Newton-John on and off for nine years. That added a lot of fuel to the buzz about this case. But just to be very clear, in her defense, I don't think it was shady at all. She didn't comment on his disappearance for seven weeks. Because they had broken up by then, by the time he disappeared. She probably thought it was none of her business if she even knew about this. But some people found it just so suspicious that she was silent on this. I wouldn't read into that. He was on a boat named the Freedom of California and was never seen again, although a false alarm once in an Australian tabloid claimed to spot him really just got this random stranger freaked out and laughing a lot because of his apparent resurfacing with a mystery new woman. In late June 2005, this boat Freedom set out with 23 fishermen on it, one being Patrick. The boat returned to shore the next day, July 1st, without him. His ex-wife ended up calling the base of operations 10 days later because he hadn't shown up to pick up their son when he was scheduled to. This was the tabloid story of the summer because of the Olivia Newton-John connection in 2005, the story in Australian tabloids. Lots of different thoughts and theories about this. Some people think he just went off the grid. He owed an ex-wife over 8k in child support. He was really struggling financially, living on disability checks. He also had a 100k life insurance policy, a payout, and he apparently made a habit of joking about this policy with fellow fishermen. But it's hard because apparently a lot of the interviews conducted by people who knew him best were not recorded. They weren't preserved. People also thought it was odd that he was a sailing regular, so it's not like he bumbled his way into a bad situation. He knew what he was doing. Investigators focus a lot on the galley tab, which is apparently only paid at the end of a trip. So if the galley tab is paid, you know the boat got to that point near the shore by then. And their point in showing his name on that tab is that if he fell off, he was close enough to shore by then, he would have been seen. Some people think he staged this disappearance and just slipped it off as 23 people tried to quickly all leave the boat. He just dashed away, unseen, amid the chaos. Adding to people's speculation was the fact the Coast Guard was tight-lipped. They refused to make their investigation public until months of pressure caused them to relent, release some records that didn't reveal much, and actually came to bite some of the conspiracy theorists in the butt by totally refuting what they had thought happened. Some people truly have dedicated themselves to figuring out what happened. This guy, Philip Klein, makes a career out of this. He's reportedly found over 90 missing people and just does it for fun. It's a mystery to him, a puzzle. He wants to have the challenge. They honestly had a really clever idea, I think, which is they bought the web domain findpatrickmcdermott.com. 
and then they could see where the IP addresses were traced. So where in the world people were visiting the site? Because a lot of times, actually, you can find a criminal or just a missing person, someone you're on the hunt for for whatever reason, by their online activity. Because they usually do read about themselves, keep up with the news stories about themselves, either because of their ego or just because of they want to stay a step ahead of the police, throw them off lead, so they like to know what they're saying about them. So they were smart to think, hey, Patrick McDermott is probably checking his own website. And it also led to some weird tips and asides, though, in misdirection, but that's what comes with the territory. Olivia Newton-John's hotels, actually, were also traced to visits to this site, so she may have been checking it while on tour. I wouldn't read into that as suspicious. I think she may have just wanted to see if he was okay, or maybe her PR people wanted to keep up with this story to keep the air clear, stay a step ahead of any speculation, and know right away when they could come out with a statement vindicating her, basically. They kept getting hits from Cabo San Lucas, so Philip and his team actually traveled there to track down some leads the summer of 2006. So they attended this big fishing tournament that they knew he would want to go to, and actually just watched this tournament, waiting to see if they could spot him amid the crowd. They didn't see him, but they did see some locals and talk to them, and those people did recognize pictures of this guy, that he had been around the area for quite some time. So I guess he just went off to live in Cabo San Lucas is the prevailing opinion, but we don't know for sure. January 2006. Joe Pickler, 18 when he disappeared, a child star from Lois and Clark, Varsity Blues, the Beethoven movies. He was a very troubled soul. He wrote poetry about depression. He didn't tell anyone where he was going. Ian left his apartment belongings where they were, except for his wallet and keys. Andy left the lights on. He had reportedly spoken to a friend around 4 a.m. The friend said he'd been in good spirits, but was then never seen again. And his family says they don't think he was actually depressed and suspect foul play. They thought he was just a sad person. Fueling rumors was the fact he had just gotten tons of money from a trust fund upon turning 18. He also may have wanted to start over a new life, some theorize, because he had given up acting, but planned recently to get back in the game and go back to California. His family supported him making that move. A Toyota Corolla was found January 2006 by a bridge with a note that looked like a suicide note. However, they brought dogs to sniff the area who did not detect his scent anywhere near the scene. And a body was never found, making some people speculate he just went off to live a new life and had staged it. August 2010. D.Y., also known as Dai Yun, that's his rap name. He's also for a shab, a 26-year-old from Canada. Although he went missing back in August 2010 after going to Mexico to film a music video, he wasn't actually officially reported missing until November. The family's explanation is kind of confusing. They said they didn't file a missing persons report right away because they just assumed he'd come home any day now, but also they worried about tainting his musical legacy by bringing more attention to the fact he had disappeared. I would assume that would draw attention regardless of their reaction, but I don't know. 2011. Daniel Lind Lagerlof, a very famous Swedish writer and director. He was location scouting for a thriller he was making, and he was looking at this remote island location. He did travel with others, it wasn't a solo trip, but he did go off exploring solo, and they never found him. 
He is officially, as of recording time, still considered missing over a decade later. 2014. Rico Harris, a basketball star who had a lot going for him. He was actually a member of the Harlem Globetrotters for just one month, but still. His teammate called him, quote, Lamar Odom before Lamar Odom, unquote, as a compliment. He actually once played for a traveling team, Master P, the rapper, sponsored. He helped an underdog team emerge victorious, win their first state title. He was once considered the best high school player in California, period. But reaching a career peak before even turning 20 has its downsides and can take a mental toll where you're stuck wondering, while your peers still feel like they have their whole life ahead of them, what do you have left to achieve? He also struggled because it sounds like he always wanted validation for more than physical prowess. And he was very excited to move on to showing his brainier side. And he was looking forward to an upcoming job interview he had for an appraisal business. He also pursued acting at one point, left Hollywood High once he was itching to play sports again. He's had a lot of different interests. He was a very shy high schooler. He went from school to school, trying to start over again and again. He led a life of drug abuse, got drunk a lot, partied a lot, fell into a depression, grew up with an absentee dad, so he became the man of the house at a very, very too young age. He actually tried a couple times to reconcile with his dad. Those attempts fell flat. He just was not met halfway, no matter what. He really was pretty much at rock bottom emotionally when he was at Arizona State and super homesick. Then he went back home, and his mom really became sort of a caretaker for him, as if he was an elderly relative. He was still getting recruiter letters, but he started ignoring them and just turning down every offer because he felt like they were substanceless, and he was tired of being recognized for just his physical ability. And he thought they, there we're proud of you, we see potential in you comments, were really hollow and just did not please him. Basketball was no longer fulfilling. He even, after applying for the NBA draft in 98, then took his name out of the running a few days beforehand. He was suspended for two games in a separate incident, and he never bothered to show up to the meeting where he was about to be reinstated. He also got into physical fights before, one that may have affected his long-term cognitive function, when someone whacked him on the back of the head with a baseball bat. He was arrested over 100 times, often for public intoxication. He did seem to be going in a promising direction in his life. After checking into rehab, he started really loving time volunteering at a soup kitchen. He became a mentor for others, got a security guard job he liked, made some new friends, met his girlfriend Jennifer, who apparently he actually got into a heated fight with his roommate about, and he was kind of given a choose-me-or-her ultimatum. He chose her over his friend and left in the middle of the night, so he wouldn't know that he chose her until he was far away, leaving the roommate with a bunch of bills. The couple wasn't a storybook romance. They fought a lot. There was also the questionable choice to share financial accounts and a Facebook page, so they became very privacy-free. The scene of the disappearance is pretty odd. The car was found with the doors locked, A backpack and phone were found nearly two miles out from where they found the car. His wallet was still in the car, as were most of his credit cards, but not his driver's license or cash. The car was out of gas and had a dead battery, at least by the time it was impounded. They also found plastic bottles in the car, one empty, one half full, both smelling like alcohol. The more interesting part to me is the size 18 shoe prints they spotted. 
Eight days after Harris left LA, new size 18 footprints were discovered a few yards away. And then an eyewitness claimed, yeah, I saw him. He's still out here. Saw him recently. Harris's family thinks he's probably still alive and just enjoying a life incognito. They also think it's possible he's living off of money from a separate bank account his girlfriend did not know about. There was a three-day search and rescue effort that did not turn up where he was. But people have seen him and seen those telltale shoe prints since what happened. I want to end with a story backing up in the timeline that I saved for last for a reason. And that's the case of Sweet Jimmy, Jimmy Robinson, the only boxer who went against Muhammad Ali and then disappeared. A really, really fascinating piece I will link to through my substack was released by ESPN writer Wright Thompson in 2009, detailing his six-year trip trying to figure out where the heck Sweet Jimmy ended up. He was actually reached out to by an autograph collector who is a super fan and trying to collect an autograph from every single one of the 50 different boxers who had been in the ring with Ali. He had gotten 49 autographs and now he was still hunting Jimmy's. He had a ton of other memorabilia, by the way. Interesting guy, even an x-ray of Ali's broken jaw. Thompson was really kind of thrown into this case, got super, super invested in finding out what happened to this guy. And what happened was kind of a fluke. Jimmy ended up boxing Ali last minute. He was a fill-in because the person originally scheduled for the fight bailed. And he never shut up about this. Not that part of the story, but never shut up about just in general fighting Ali. He considered it a big point of pride, told the story again and again and again. Yet he also wasn't great. He had a ton of losses in the ring and seemed to complain quite a bit about how he should have been the next Ali, how his career should have been taken in new heights post-Ali match, and that did not happen. What happened to Jimmy after February 7th, 1961? Lots of questions there. They got leads from so many people who knew him, though, with interesting quotes. They started looking in very poor areas of Miami. This was a time in Miami where the population dropped from 40k to 10k-ish. There was this drug economy filling this void. The interstates were built, displacing thousands. And this zip code became one of the poorest in the country. And turns out to be where Jimmy had ended up. Maybe. People knew him there. He became a regular on the streets there. One woman, Brenda, actually claimed to just see him every day and was on the phone with him and then was asked, hey, can we speak to him? And she wouldn't let them, which was suspicious. Someone else he knew well on those streets said, quote, if he died, he didn't die here. If he died in this town, you'd know, unquote. Residents of this area had a million different ideas for where he could end up. So here are just the places I caught in the piece. I may be forgetting one or two, but residents think, yeah, Jimmy went off too. Missouri, Clearwater, Florida, St. Pete, Tampa, Louisiana, Texas, Georgia, Alabama, or Ohio. Not too hard to find him now, right? After these six years of searching, Thompson found the contact info for Willie, the man who was originally scheduled to fight Ali that fateful night. It was in the phone book the whole time. It was just misspelled, and so he had to find it somewhere else. He found out this guy went by Big Willie and was a very popular man about town. Nearing age 75 by the time they spoke, he confirmed it was him and said he was offered $300 for the fight compared to Ali's $800. That's not really relevant here. I just found the disparity interesting. 
Another character in this story, Al, fought Jimmy himself twice, but after seeing a picture of Jimmy, claimed that wasn't him, and that he really looked totally different now, and that he went incognito and started using a totally different name. However, the author cast doubt on Al's credibility and memory. This woman, Shelley, whose credibility is also maybe not solid, said, quote, Jimmy said he had a brother. I didn't believe it until I saw him. His brother came and got him and took him home. I'm probably the only one who's seen him get in the car. Said, I'll see you when I come back. I never saw him no more, unquote. I leave with this because there's a really thought-provoking quote in the piece from Thompson that I just find really summative of all these stories. Quote, in a way, Jim Robinson didn't begin to exist until someone realized he was missing. Unquote. He didn't even begin to exist until he was missing. Think about it. No one was on this quest to find him until the autograph collector prompted the search. His life after that fight, and even before and during it, not really in the public memory. And with all these cases, that seems to be one of the bottom lines that they all have is there's a very prominent, well-known, famous person who everyone claims to love and adore endlessly. But then, it's like when they go off the map, people forget about them all too easily. Or they, they just view them as characters. So if a character is written out of your life script, to use a weird analogy, then you just shrug and say, okay, guess that's the direction the script takes. Honestly, I went into researching this episode thinking it would just be a really interesting one, just with some really interesting true stories. I didn't realize how much it would just be dark, so I apologize for that. But I do think it's illuminating about how we view celebrity and what purpose we view celebrities as having. And when they no longer serve that purpose for us, do we still care about the person behind that celebrity? And all too often the answer is no. And that's why so many of these stories are based on mental health issues, breakdowns, lack of support. People go off the grid when people stop caring. So if only we could learn to better appreciate people in their entirety, on and off screen, on and off stage, on and off the court, before tragedy. What if we stop to appreciate them while they're here? This is not to say that people do just totally stop caring. But it is interesting and worth interrogating why people tend not to dwell on this, but move on quickly, say, oh, that's too bad, that's sad, and then not be invested anymore in finding out what happened to them. I'm not really proposing an answer or a clear moral. It's just what I've been thinking about lately is how maybe these disappearances would be preventable if the underlying cause was addressed better, which is a sense of being forgettable, a sense that the public will turn on them just like that. If we get rid of that perpetual fear of being forgotten, that worry that they're not being fully respected as a full human, if they felt a true connection with ride-or-die fans, maybe then the underlying psychological reasons they go off the grid would no longer be there, and they wouldn't. They would feel comfortable just living in society. I also think it's interesting how often these people go off the grid in a way that aligns with their work like writing a book about aliens. Then suddenly, you get lost in the desert too, just like the alien abducted main character. Or Barbara writing a story about a nymph who goes into hiding, and she sort of magically poofed away too. It's like an impulse for life to imitate art, if need be, for your story to feel worthwhile, worth an audience, to have this reassurance that your story means something to someone, and is brought to life and valuable. Just my thoughts. Let me know what this episode has prompted you to think about. Hopefully a lot.
I hope you found this stuff interesting at least and a reminder to make sure people know they matter. Thank you all for listening today. I'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody.